Uh, First, a reading from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 15 through 20. Now listen, today I'm giving you a choice between life and death, between prosperity and disaster. For I command you this day to love your Lord God and keep his commands, decrees, and regulations by walking in his ways. If you do this, you will live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you and the land you are about to enter and occupy. But if your heart turns away and you refuse to listen, and if you are drawn away to serve and worship other gods, then I warn you now that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live a long, good life in the land you are crossing the Jordan to occupy. Today I have given you the choice between life and death, between blessings and curses. Now I call on heaven and earth to witness the choice you make. Oh, that you would choose life so that you and your descendants might live. You can make this choice by loving the Lord your God, obeying him, and committing yourself firmly to him. This is the key to your life. And if you love and obey the Lord, you will live long in the land the Lord swore to give your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now a reading from the New Testament, Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. About this time, Jesus was informed that Pilate had murdered some people from Galilee as they were offering sacrifices at the temple. Do you think those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other people from Galilee? Jesus asked, is that why they suffered? Not at all. And you will perish too unless you repent of your sins and turn to God. And what about the 18 people who died when the tower in Siloam fell? Were they the worst sinners in Jerusalem? No, and I tell you again that unless you repent, you will perish too. The word of God for the people of God. I feel like we could be a little more interactive in general. So if we clap for Katie, thank you, Katie. Uh, And then let's clap for Megan. She reads. I am silly. This is, this is why my wife loves me. Uh, friends, super glad that you're here. Thank you for being here. Uh, just as a reminder, we are marching slowly through the Gospel of Luke, going, for the most part, section by section. We skip some things every once in a while. Um, and so we have now arrived in Luke chapter 13, which is a pretty spicy Uh, little section of scripture. We're calling this the Spicy Gospel Series because Jesus says some spicy, wild, seemingly crazy things. And this is is actually going to contribute to that sort of perception today. Uh, But let's start here. It seems to happen without fail. Every time there is a natural disaster, every time there's a terrorist attack, Every time there's a mass shooting, the national media is going to get some Christian, put them in front of the camera, and ask them where God was in all the suffering and death. And of course, they're just so happen that they're going to pick somebody who says the wildest things. Because the wildest things coming out of the mouths of Christians tends to get more clicks more comments, and more views. So the wilder somebody is, the better for their ratings. 
So they find somebody who, sure enough, every single time is absolutely sure that the mayhem of the day is God's punishment on America for abortion or the gays. It happens every single time. When I was 25 years old and Katrina hit New Orleans, it, was, uh, it, it seemed to bring out the Christian opportunists like no other event I've maybe ever seen aside from 9-11. Because it seemed like just from a purely oceanic hurricane perspective that that hurricane went directly at a city that has a reputation at least for moral debauchery. Franklin Graham, who never misses an opportunity to stand before a microphone and say something dumb, said, this is one wicked city, okay? It is known for Mardi Gras, for Satan worship. It's known for sex perversion. It's known for every type of drugs and alcohol and the orgies and all the... He's just like hitting all the notes. All those down there in New Orleans. There's been a black spiritual... A black cloud over a black city? A black spiritual cloud over New Orleans for some time. God is going to use that storm to bring revival. Then John Hagee, who is not one to be outdone by other people's absurdities... Added, I believe that New Orleans had a level of sin that was offensive to God, and they were recipients of God's of the judgment of God for that. Now, look, just as it was really easy for them to choose New Orleans, it's really easy for us to choose them as examples of absurdities, right? When the real fact is that for both of these men, these men represent millions of Christians across this nation and across the world, including many that we know, including many that we love and we hold dear. These folks assume, and we often, when we are honest, we often assume that there is a direct connection between that disaster and divine judgment. That some sin must have happened that caused the devastation, that caused divine judgment, which resulted in devastation. But to hold that kind of cause and effect worldview is to completely say, I've never read Luke 13. Because what Jesus is doing in Luke 13 is he is dismantling our assumptions about simple moral causation. We often assume that divine judgment and devastation are synonyms, and Jesus is going to disabuse us of that idea. Now, I should tell you before I get too far into this that nothing about this sermon is going to answer the question about why do natural disasters happen. Why do bad things happen? Why do good people get sick? Why do people die? This sermon is not going to answer those questions because honestly, Scripture never really answers that question. 
Scripture gives us the response of people as they suffer. People who feel free to raise their fists before God and say, why God? Why have you forsaken me? Why did this thing happen? Why is our temple destroyed? Why are my children sick? Why did my whole family die? Scripture gives us permission through example to raise these questions, but Scripture doesn't actually really attempt to answer this. God never illuminates divine logic behind suffering and death despite what Franklin Graham or John Hagee or John Piper or anybody else might say. But what passages like this will try to do for us is actually disabuse us of the wrong answers, of which there are many. Even wrong answers that have biblical precedent. So can I say this again? Luke 13 is going to say that even a biblically correct answer is not a sufficient answer. I say biblical precedent because Jesus is directly challenging the biblical idea that there is simple moral causation, that there is a cause and effect relationship between devastation and divine judgment. The idea is strongly rooted, as Megan was reading, in the book of Deuteronomy where we read earlier that God promises to bless Israel if they obey and give them long life and prosperity and success and health, and God promises to curse them if they disobey, cutting their lives short and making them poor and struggling. It is a theology that says there are blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. And much of this is the assumption behind Old Testament texts. The Hebrew Bible is filled with this idea. You cannot read it. You cannot read book, uh, stories like, for example, Joshua taking over the promised land without seeing this kind of theology in play. Or David and Solomon procuring power for themselves because they're God's chosen ones. Or even the prophets later promising Israel's eventual destruction because they sinned. The assumption in these stories is that devastation is synonymous with divine judgment and success is synonymous with divine sanction. It goes back to the book of Deuteronomy. This, now, now look, the Hebrew Bible is much more complicated than just this, right? So this exists, it undergirds a lot of the stories in the Hebrew Bible, but it's not the only voice in the Hebrew Bible. So for example, the book of Job. The book of Job is set up, the entire book is devoted to dismantling this idea from Deuteronomy. Because what you have is the narrator telling us from the very beginning of the book of Job that Job was a righteous man who obeyed God in every way, caused him basically sinless, made sure that his family was faithful in worship, and yet natural disaster happens repeatedly such that his family is destroyed. And when his friends show up, the first thing they say to him, and really the thing they say to him for 30 chapters, 
is, Job, just admit what you did wrong. We know that God is good. And we know that God would not allow something bad to happen unless you deserved it because God is good. So just just admit what you did. I think Job's wife even says, curse God and die. Listen, I've known some people who've gone through divorces. That's a harsh word right there. Right? she's, She's saying, dude, Whatever it was that you did, game over, man. Like, just just own it. This is 30 chapters of the discussion. And for 30 chapters, Job insists. He says, no, no, I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't deserve this. My children didn't deserve this. Can I say straightforwardly what I would have liked to have said in this sermon? I would have titled the sermon this, uh, and I would have kept using this phrase, but there's non-churchy language here. Job's theology of suffering is not that there is cause and effect, moral cause and effect. Job's theology of suffering, and I agree with him, is bleep happens. Bleep happens. But he's dealing with friends who all assume that there is a moral causation. So the, and, and at the end of the book, Job's just raising his fist to God saying, God, uh, you need to get yourself a lawyer. Because I'm going to take you to court. And he takes God to court. And God shows up at court and he's just like, yeah. There's no real answer. I'm God. Even if I told you, you wouldn't get it. Scripture does not offer us some sort of moral logic. And so Deuteronomy is an attempt at moral logic, right? Bad things happen because somebody did something bad. And this idea is at play throughout the Old Testament. This idea is at play when Franklin Graham stands before Katrina and says he thinks he knows God's will in a natural disaster. And this understanding of suffering is at play And Luke 13, a group of people in the crowd following Jesus come to him with front page headline news. Pontius Pilate has sent his soldiers into the temple during the sacrifice time. And Pilate has slaughtered a number of Galilean Jewish worshipers. And the slaughter was so thorough that the blood of their sacrifices mixed with the blood of the worshipers offering a kind of gruesome offering to the gods of violence and political power. In Deuteronomy's thinking, these Galileans must have done something to deserve such a devastating death. Because in this cause and effect thinking, devastation and divine judgment go together. Especially when it is those people over there who suffer. See, the Galileans are in Jerusalem worshiping when this happens, but they're Galileans. They're second-class Jews. They're somewhere between honest-to-goodness Jews and straight-up pagan Gentiles. 
Galilean Jews were stereotyped as less faithful and possibly less deserving of, or possibly even deserving of their fate. The crowd doesn't say it directly, but Jesus picks up on the implication. They want to know what God's reasoning was for cursing the Galileans because God is pure good. God would not have allowed this unless the Galileans had done something bad. Now, keep in mind here then, where is Jesus? Where is Jesus physically located? Well, he's been telling us for months in our journey, but probably weeks in his own, that he's going to Jerusalem. He's going to the place where this violence has occurred by Pontius Pilate. He's probably already there at this point. I'm telling you, I was trying to look through Luke for like a geographic marker. It seems like he's already in Jerusalem or he's like on the outskirts of Jerusalem when they bring in this news. But notice, the news is not about people from Jerusalem. It's about these Galilean visitors, these second-class Jews. The news is not about Jerusalemites, it's about Galileans. It would be like if Jesus were entering into Nashville, and then the Nashvillians, is that how we, what we call them? Is it Nashvillians? Okay. The Nashvillians were just like, did you hear what happened to those people who came to Nashville from Memphis? And the question is loaded not only with moral presumption, but also conveniently asked about other people with one whom has prior moral and cultural stereotypes. It's easy, in other words, to talk about divine judgment and wrath when you're dealing with those people over there, right? Have you, have you ever noticed how rarely, I'm not gonna say it never happens, but how rarely groups of people are like, yeah, that was definitely God's wrath on us. <laughs> I'm not gonna say it's never, but usually it's like, oh yeah, that was definitely God's wrath on them. It's really easy to talk about divine judgment when all we're talking about is in abstractions. Those people over there who also probably definitely deserve it. When you have no personal relationship with Memphis or Galilee or downtown, when you know nothing about people's situations, it's really easy to assume all kinds of moral things for them, about them. I don't know Franklin Graham personally. Probably would not enjoy that relationship if I did. But I bet you he didn't have any intimate relationships with people who lived in New Orleans. And if he did know somebody who lived in New Orleans, I doubt very seriously that he had an intimate relationship with the people, with someone who was doing downtown justice and mercy work and involving themselves in the city where, quote, this debauchery happens. 
I doubt very seriously that he was in an intimate relationship with someone who was trying to do good in the downtown of that city and who saw people who live on the streets as human beings and who love them and then a hurricane is coming to that city and they realize all of these people I love are about to die because none of them have a means of escaping the city. I doubt very seriously Franklin Glam had a relationship with anybody like that who was that intimately involved in that city because it is really hard to talk about divine judgment when you know people and you care about them. It is easy to cast curses from afar and Jesus is not going to let us get away with it. So notice what Jesus says. What about the 18 people who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them? Were they the worst sinners in Jerusalem? Now notice, notice what he did here. I highlighted Jerusalem on purpose because they were talking about Galileans and Jesus brings it right into their group. He brings it home. He makes them feel the judgment they're casting on others. He will not allow them to think about divine judgment in pure abstractions. He will not allow them to assume divine judgment and devastation are merely something that other people experience, but my people did not. He will not allow them to presume that their political party is innocent and the other one is dirty, evil, and lost. And he will not allow them to continue. He will not allow them to continue in the biblically correct but theologically wrong idea that everybody who suffers must have gotten on God's bad side. It turns out you can say what the Bible says and still miss the heart of God. We all know people like this. We got family members like this, right? We love them deeply. But you don't want to talk to them about certain things because they got a Bible verse for everything. But somehow in their disposition and their answers, they've lost any capacity for empathy. They think they know God's will and somehow that forms their heart in a way that they become callous toward the suffering of people who they think deserve that suffering. So what, how are we supposed to think about this? How are we supposed to interpret things when devastation does happen? What what is the framework through which we're supposed to approach this? Well, what would Jesus have us do here? I think first, I think Jesus expects us to think about ourselves first and not others. This, This is what Jesus says, right? He says it twice. Were they the worst sinners? No, I tell you again, unless you repent, you will perish too. 
If there is such thing as divine wrath in any given situation, it is not because the abortionists and it's not because the gays and it's not because other people over there. It's an opportunity for you and me, you and I, to reflect and to think. It's not because of races you don't like and identities you don't like and political parties you don't like. They are not the reason for divine judgment. Thinking about divine judgment begins with thinking about ourselves first. Don't leave it in the abstract because you can't feel it in the abstract. Whatever we say about the suffering of those far away must be consistent with what we are ready to say about the tragedies that strike closer to home. Even about our own suffering. And here's how this really works out. Because we are so, uh, and I think rightly in many cases, hesitant to pronounce divine judgment on ourselves because we know our own circumstances and our own motives. I think the real call here is to examine myself and make sure I'm not just judging other people. That's really what this comes down to. Jesus' point here is to universalize divine judgment in a way that, such that we stop assuming that our side escapes it. And to personalize divine judgment so that we all feel the discomfort of it instead of just pinning it on our favorite sinners. But once we admit that our enemies, like us, seem to experience devastation at random, then I think we've arrived at the place where we actually stop explaining God's role or giving meaning to suffering to begin with. See, this is, the, the, this is I think, where, where, where we ultimately end up. We're not going to be the people who pronounce wrath on ourselves because we understand ourselves. We can have compassion on ourselves, as a group especially. Once we stop doing that to other people, then we realize maybe the whole enterprise of trying to explain suffering and give it meaning is futile. Bleep happens. The end. We have a God who participates with us in our grief who grieves when we grieve. But God does not cause that grief for some purpose or meaning. Bleep happens. It is not bad people who suffer. It is all people who suffer. It is all creation who suffers. It is not that God needed another angel. It is not that God gives the hardest test to the strongest warriors. There's no meaning in it. 
this is liberating. Because now we can stop trying to explain why other people suffer or stop trying, stop shaming ourselves when we suffer and start realizing that we are a part of a frail, broken collective called humanity in a broken, frail world where death happens. The winds form the hurricanes and the tornadoes not because God wills them to or because they are inherently malevolent, but because that is what winds do. The earth cracks not to punish human sin, but because of pressures in the tectonic plates. People die of cancer, not because they are evil, but because they are mortal. And the human body is imperfect. So to me, what would this repentance look like that Jesus calls us to keeping all of these things in mind? I think partially it's a reversal of our assumptions that people who have a lot of things deserve all those things. And people who don't have those things must have done something to deserve not having things. But here's where I think it hits us in an everyday sense. The call here is to repent by ceasing our attempts to make meaning of suffering. To stop talking and explaining and justifying ourselves or God and simply repent by instead listening. Entering into people's grief and pain and suffering with them, not with explanations and answers, but by your silence and your presence. To hear the pain of people murdered because of political violence or killed in national disasters and to repent by ceasing our explaining. Given that there are no answers to the problem of suffering, perhaps silence is the best we can do. Stop talking. Stop trying to answer or explain. Instead, listen, be quiet, be present, sit in silence, bring casseroles, care for the children, scrub the mold, help rebuild, weep, embrace, and listen. You ever been to a funeral where you go through that visitation line or, and you feel this pressure inside of you because you know the person who's there is grieving and you want to offer an encouragement to them? And so all of a sudden, like a, 
a platitude comes out when you're with them. Here's the reality. Even if you did have the perfect answer for why someone has died, it doesn't help. No one at a funeral is going to grieve and then you offer the perfect answer and they're going to be like, wow, you know what? I feel better now. Like that's never happened. But you know what does happen is we offer explanations and answers and meaning and that's not what they need. You know what they need? It's for you to come in, hug them, say I love you, and move on. Don't make them carry the weight of your answers. All of which means that Jesus would have us then at bottom line repent. Every event of human suffering is an opportunity to consider our own complicity in political violence, our own complicity in blaming victims of natural disasters, our own complicity in global warming that has long-term effects on our environment and the most vulnerable people among us, to consider our own stereotypes and how they reinforce our lack of empathy, how our judgments produce further suffering by making us unable to care for the suffering people right in front of us. To repent of our ideas that devastation is synonymous with divine judgment, you and I are called to repent of such thinking, whether it's judging others or even ourselves. Because once we've stopped giving meaning and judgment to it, we realize that this whole time, Luke has been preparing us for the cross. Because at the cross, the only truly innocent person ever suffers unjustly and participates in our suffering. Our pain is swept up into the very body of God. And that is the only answer we are ever given. That Jesus dies at the hands of, but also somehow for the very people who you would think God would be cursing. That should end all discussion of our presumption of divine wrath. And we remember this every week at the communion table. Where we come and say, we have not loved you with our whole hearts. But you have loved us anyway.